Hey there, podcast listeners. This is Monique, the host of the podcast, The Why Behind the Buy, here to tell you that starting with our next episode, we're going through a rebrand. We've decided to change the name of this podcast to The Marketing Insider, a Claritas podcast. Same great content you've come to know and love over the past couple of years, but now with new artwork and a name that better explains what you can expect from each episode. An insider look into how to market to your best customers and prospects. We hope you'll stick around with us, and we can't wait to come back with brand new episodes under our new name, The Marketing Insider, a Claritas podcast. And welcome to the Why Behind the Buy, a podcast for marketers focused on finding and targeting their ideal customers at scale. I'm your host, Monique Ruiz, and for this month's episode, we're focusing on multicultural audiences. From their spending power to their projected growth over time, this massive group of consumers are where it's at when we're talking opportunity for your company. While we've had a handful of episodes on the podcast focusing on specific multicultural groups, we thought we'd take a step back to make it even more crystal clear as to why your marketing strategy should include a specific breakout for reaching these diverse consumers. Joining me today are return guests Ron Cohen, VP of Practice Leadership here at Claritas, and Albert Thompson, Managing Director of Digital at Walton Isaacson. Before we hear from Albert, who will share his perspective from both the marketer side and the client perspective, I'm going to go ahead and bring Ron in with me to talk some facts and figures from the data side. So Ron, welcome back to the Why Beyond the Buy. Hi, Monique. Thanks for having me back. Of course. So even though you've been on the podcast before, can you remind our listeners about your areas of expertise? Oh, the list is long and distinguished, but for our purposes today, I ran the product management, primary research, and data science teams at Geoscape, which is where most of our multicultural data at Claritas came from. Nice. And so where I'd like to start off today is with a basic question. When we say multicultural consumers or audiences, who exactly are we referring to? The short answer is everyone except white non-Hispanics. As you know, Monique Claritas maintains extensive data and behavioral data sets cut by both race and ethnicity. According to the Census Bureau, race groups include white, black or African-American, Asian, American Indian or Native Alaskan, and Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander. The Census Bureau basically defines ethnicity as either Hispanic or Latino or not Hispanic or Latino. Now, there are, of course, differences between Hispanic and Latino. For example, Brazilians are Latino, but not technically Hispanic. But the real point here is that Hispanics can be of any race. Most Hispanics are white, but some are black. Many Caribbean Hispanics are black, for example. Some are Asian, think about Filipinos. And some are American Indian, particularly in the American Southwest and in parts of Central and South America. So race and ethnicity overlap. So in this country, anyone who is not in the white race group and or in the Hispanic ethnicity group is considered to be multicultural. Got it. And then understanding that, I think it's important to note that the total U.S. population is about 40% multicultural, but some of the top DMAs are already majority multicultural. Are there any that might come as a surprise, or are there any that are close to coming becoming majority multicultural? 
Well, there are many that are that are majority multicultural. I don't know if it's a surprise that it's multicultural, but the fact that over 70% of the LA and Miami markets are, are multicultural is a bit of an eye-opener. And if you look at metros, in fact, six out of the top seven most populated U.S. metros are already majority multicultural. And wow. Chicago is over 48% multicultural, or it would be seven out of seven. Now, L.A. can be understood as the entertainment industry is incredibly diverse and attracts many transplants from other places. And Miami may be understandable for geographic reasons. It is the gateway to the U.S. for most of Latin America. Mm -hmm. But there are some surprises. Majority multicultural markets, now metros now, include Washington, D.C., Atlanta, San Francisco, Orlando, Las Vegas, and San Jose, home of the Silicon Valley. Majority Mm -hmm. multicultural. I don't think most people would necessarily think of these markets as being as diverse as they actually are. Yeah, uh, San Jose for me stands out. So uh, what does the multicultural population increase mean when we think of what has traditionally been the majority population, which would be white non-Hispanic? Well, white non-Hispanic is still the majority, but their population size is projected to decrease by 1.3 million over the next five years, while the multicultural population will increase by 12 million in that same same time period. That means that virtually all the population growth will come from multicultural segments for the foreseeable future. From a brand perspective, this means that if you want your business to see growth over time, you need to have a marketing strategy that incorporates multicultural consumers, whether in your messaging, your advertising, your branding, your product lineup, etc. Very good point. And then when we look at opportunity, how much consumer spending do multicultural households account for? We've we've had episodes that break out the specific groups, which I mentioned earlier, but what about that total universe, so to speak? We estimate $2.3 trillion annually, which wow. works out to about $55,000 per multicultural household per year. Now, if you think about that in terms of income, the median U.S. income is only $65,600-something per year. So that's a pretty high number. This is why multicultural consumers should be a key factor in a brand's growth plan and why it's important to know how to market to them responsibly. Right. So then breaking that down even further into shopping habits, what are some unique multicultural audience insights that might pique the interest of marketers listening to this episode? Okay. Well, multicultural consumers are far more likely to be brand loyal and much more likely to share their recommendations with others. So multicultural consumers, uh, according to our research, are 25% more likely to recommend a food product they like to people they know, and 35% more likely to recommend a technology product, and 40% more likely to recommend a financial product or service they like to people they know. The other side of that is that multicultural consumers are 30% more likely to seek the advice of others before making a purchase. So that works out well. You need to understand the detailed profiles of these audiences, including acculturation insights where applicable, language preference, etc. As it's important not to execute your multicultural marketing with a one-size-fits-all approach. Right. And loyalty from them stems from loyalty to them, and that can often be accomplished by showing that a brand is focused on understanding who they are and what they want. Yeah, I just want to kind of chime in that, you know, oftentimes small businesses in particular will say that referrals are one of their best sources of advertising and the most obviously cost effective for them. So, yeah, so that's definitely a good point there. 
when we talk digital, so digital tends to be the preferred channel for multicultural audiences. And in the age of social media, especially now where shoppers have essentially been forced to go digital due to closed or limited brick and mortar operations, what will help marketers reach these audiences? Well, multicultural consumers are far more likely to seek and share their opinions about brands, not just in general, but specifically online and and in particular on social media. They're 45% more likely to say that they like to share their opinions about products and services by posting reviews and ratings online. And 40% more than likely to say that their primary reason for visiting a social media website is to rate or review a product or service. Again, this works out well since multicultural consumers are also 30% more likely to say that their reasons for visiting or using a social networking website was to find out about products and services. And if you just look at Hispanics and Asians, it's 40% more likely to use social media for this purpose. And if that doesn't convince you, multicultural consumers are 50% more likely to say that they like to connect with brands through social networking sites. Wow. (laughs) Uh, You know, since they have those high tech adoption rates, one thing that I think about is they're likely visiting brand websites sort of anonymously, meaning they're not necessarily signing up for an email list or making a purchase. So when they're visiting anonymously, we have ways that we can help a brand uncover who's visiting a site and for retargeting efforts. And we actually talked about this in one of our Uh, an episode, probably two episodes back. So um, we're going to link that in the show notes. But aside from social networking sites, are there any other good digital channels to reach multicultural consumers with your marketing message? I like to listen to local radio stations online. They like to stream internet radio and TV, particularly via their smartphones. Uh, So that could be useful in determining where to allocate your digital advertising budget dollars. These two channels are smart bets. It's also worth mentioning that if you do have an initiative to connect with your multicultural consumers via social media, you should know that they are much more likely to purchase brands that support causes they care about. Mm. That's a good point. Well, Ron, this flew by, but I think you um, gave us some great stats out there for marketers listening to kind of take note of and answered a few questions that I think are, you know, just folks just don't know the answers too. So you've given us some good food for thought and appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Uh, Thank you for having me and I'll try to speak more slowly next time. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to go into a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Albert Thompson, the Managing Director of Digital at Walton Isaacson. Hey, are you ignoring your most profitable customer base? What if I told you there were four easy steps to find out if you are, and it starts with tapping into your anonymous customer base. Considering 90% of website visitors are anonymous, it's critical that you engage with the audiences who are already engaging with you, whether you currently know it or not. To learn more, visit claritas.com and click on the Insights tab to access our blog aptly named, Are You Ignoring Your Most Profitable Customers? And now, let's continue with the episode. We're back, and I'm now joined by Albert Thompson, Managing Director of Digital at Walton Isaacson, a full-service advertising agency that focuses on marketing sports, lifestyle, entertainment, experiential, and branded content to multicultural consumers. Albert also hosts his own podcast called The Transient Identity, 
a weekly chronicle of how consumer behavior continuously redefines the rules of engagement for marketers. Albert, welcome to the Why Behind the Buy. Thank you. Thank you very so, uh, so much. A pleasure to be here today and uh, you know, look forward to getting into our discussion today. We're excited to have you. So I, I just gave a quick overview of what Walton Isaacson does, but can you tell me in your own words what you do for the company so our listeners can get a feel for your expertise? Absolutely. So I've been with the agency, wow, just across uh, 12 years. So I really was brought on in the infancy to help sort of establish what the digital offering capability would be going back to the early time of, of, of the agency's infancy. Nice. So just before our interview now, I was speaking with my colleague, Ron, and while Claritas and Walton Isaacson understand the importance of what the shift to being a majority multicultural country means for marketers, not everyone does. So I'd like to hear from you. What are some of the biggest challenges you've come up against in the past or have heard about when it comes to trying to stress the need for this consideration when developing marketing campaigns and strategies? Sure, absolutely. It's a great question. Great place to start. You know, I think it, I would start with a very simple premise. And as a marketer or someone in, in business trying to sell and transact a product to a consumer and understanding who that consumer is, you need to face the world the way it faces you. And that's a, a, a positioning statement the agency has used at times over the years. And what you find is there's a disconnect between the decision maker who they cast as a consumer, who they think it is, or they want it to be, and who actually is the power consumer who's going to drive not only trial adoption, but growth in that sector. And I think right. you can find in a lot of channels, a lot of categories, it is a multicultural consumer who is the power user. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had to basically sell the value of an inclusive or diversity marketing to clients before? Yes. I, look, I think if you're in that business, you're doing it every day. You, you, you come to work and you know, yeah. I'm fortunate enough to do it with pleasure. Um, but it's one of those facets where it's a continuous education because look, you're trying to un uh, uh, unpack or unravel consumer preferences, consumer behaviors mm -hmm. in a way that the decision maker may not have line of sight. You know, the idea is you launch a campaign, launch a product with a consumer in mind, you find out later, who the buyer really is. Mm -hmm. You have to make adjustments and pivots. The harder pivot is when that person just at, at the end of the day doesn't look like you, doesn't speak right. the same language as you. So now you're talking about making shifts in strategy or deciding if that's what you want to do. And unfortunately, you, you're doing it with or without, well, largely with a bias. And it's a bias against what you know, what you're comfortable with, what you can identify with. Right. Yeah. And, and on the flip side, do you have any uh, like success stories that you can share with us from some of your clients that do have that strong strategy towards multicultural consumers. And I promise I won't ask you to name names if you can't, but I'd, I'd love to hear where people are getting it right. You know, for us, that's probably been uh, with the greatest level of consistency, probably the Lexus business, but that ladders all the way into Toyota Motor Corp just in general. But the commitment is there uh, across both brands and haven't deviated. I think they've been trying to figure out not only its proper place, but proper investment based upon the level of return that can be witnessed. With 
any targeted campaign, there are certain considerations that marketers need to have in order to successfully and responsibly reach consumers or multicultural consumers in the context of this conversation. But knowing that a large percentage of millennials also fit into that bucket of being multicultural, I'd love to hear your perspective on how their path to purchase differs from older generations. Yeah, so when you think about millennials, and, and I would throw uh, uh, Gen Z in there as well, mm-hmm. um, they are going to shape shift the, the entire universe of consumer consumption patterns uh, all the way down from what their path to purchase looks like, their decision-making model, to recency and frequency, to what is going to constitute loyalty. And I'll start with, you know, the, the basis of your question of it's an inverse model. You know, boomers and, and older Gen Xers like myself were very much TV first in our early brand adoption uh, consumerism, if you want to say. So, so mm-hmm. the millennials are really going to change the notion of consumerism and because they're multicultural, largely, I'm going to get into that as well. You have to start with what I've called the attention. I don't call the attention stack. I mean, that's what I named it, but I have to give the IAB credit for it in one of their uh, recent uh, white papers. The attention stack of all the platforms, mostly social in nature, definitely all digital, where we are putting most of our time and attention to in terms of wearing in in our our brand sensibility. So you're talking about, you know, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat, YouTube. You're talking about streaming platforms in a connected TV sense or in a broader scope, everything OTT. You're talking about the audio streaming platforms from your Spotify's to your Pandora's to, you know, what may be just coming through your, your, your local radio wire. I mean, attention stack is what's going to hold power. And for millennials and an upcoming Gen Z, that is going to be the starting point of campaign planning. You simply cannot start from a TV first model. It's, it's dying. While it might give you the scale, it's not going to get you the, the conversion factor. It's not going to build on all those other sensibilities that makes someone stay with a brand essentially mm-hmm. entirely. And it doesn't have the agility and flexibility to do that either. Uh, it also doesn't have the communications range. So millennials are hyper communicators. The intention stack are, are comprised platforms that allow for two-way, one-to-many, many-to-one uh, uh, communication uh, variables to take hold. Nothing can compete with that. So when you start to look at how all that is interwoven, uh, gaming is the other one part of the intention stack. So you think of Twitch. Right. Um, Fortnite, in particular Fortnite, because that's going to merge more as a social community than is, is a gaming platform per se. You know, those are the things that are going to start to mean and matter far more um, than even some of the things that exist in a physical sense. Yeah, I, that's a, a great answer and a good way to, to kind of break it down. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't know about you, but I would love to forget that we're in the middle of a pandemic and not have to bring it up in this podcast anymore. But, you know, obviously it's the world that we live in. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it while we're still in the midst of its effects. So I think it goes without saying, but COVID-19 basically forced companies to ramp up their digital targeting efforts to reach consumers. And that was due to restrictions limiting people's abilities or even their overall comfort level with those offline activities like walking into a store to make a purchase instead of going to the uh, e-commerce shop. So how has the shift in uh, the 
and focus affected the way that you assist your clients? Have their priorities changed or have you changed the way that you approach your clients with marketing strategies? Absolutely. And I think the biggest thing, and I've said it, is that the world is getting a first class lesson in supply chain management. You know, my background is in marketing. So I understand the in, the entire discipline and range of marketing is long before you get to advertisers and promotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the, we live in an era where when there's, when there's no supply chain, there's no product of retail to buy. Um, thus you don't exist and neither does your marketing or advertising budget to support that. And when you start to think about the notion of business planning, you have to understand that notion. You have to understand what happens in any type of lockdown situation. If people can't get to the, the storefront, what does that mean? Can they make money? Or can there only be leads generated and reservations booked, but no one can experience the product? I think you found clients that felt that an online channel to procure wasn't as necessary because it had always been done a certain way. And now they've realized that the future viability is they have to open up the pipes for that path to purchase. The biggest thing that I've seen is there is a disconnect between the fundamentals of a client establishing their, their path to purchase as they want it and see it and the consumer's journey as they want to define it themselves, which a lot of it comes through their, the, the customer experience. So when those are out of alignment, which is what you found when COVID impacted, brand says, we want to sell like this. Consumer says, I'm only going to buy like that. So, okay. In addition to COVID being a major concern for basically brand health, consumers have been very vocal in the past few months calling for more diversity with the way that brands go to market. And you kind of alluded to this uh, just a few minutes ago, but what advice would you give to a company who has essentially a diversity issue, whether they know it or have had the public pointed out to them in recent months, if they actually want to rectify it in an authentic way? Yeah. I mean, you have to start with some universal truths and let's start with a consumer truth. Uh, in particular, when you look at millennials and Gen Z, and if you add Gen X, that's 75% of the, ad, the the consumer buying audience that's mm-hmm. active. So each of the generations, let's say they get a fourth, 25% attribution is different category by category. And let's start you know, with, with millennials and, and the Gen Z factor. Consumerism is being reshaped by half the people that don't represent you and how the business was built and who the decision makers are. That That's a gap you have to acknowledge and be aware of. Yeah. Uh, the younger generation is largely a multicultural consumer because you just look at population, birth rates, et cetera, and the fact that they're all rooted around pop culture and, and, and hip-hop culture in the center, which is very much rooted in, in Black culture. You start to look at who's the driver of consumerism. That's another human truth, and it's not what it was even 10 years ago, and you have to acknowledge that. Then you have to sit there and say, okay, how are we going to understand that if the makeup of the leadership and decision makers don't reflect the consumer, the consumer is going to win. They're going to decide whether you're going to succeed or fail. So you have to get very oriented mentally quickly around understanding them. And then you start to say, well, what resources and tools do we need around us to better understand them to i.e. sell more and make more of a profit? So that's the consumer truth piece. I think most organizations know their diversity scores are subpar. Right. There's a few historically that I think have done it well, Toyota Motor, Motor Corp in totality, you know, a, a Verizon, an AT&T, a Coca-Cola, um, a Bank of America. I mean, there are no surprises here. I mean, these are the people sponsoring the, most of the multicultural efforts existing in the world today. Ford Motor Company is probably another one. Um, but everyone else, 
not so much. Procter & Gamble is another one. What you find is that there's always a category leader who gets it, and then nobody else gets it at all. So if you look at each category, you could say American Express, yes. Um, this competitor, no. Mm-hmm. You know, Verizon, yes. Uh, you look at the other brands, eh, they pick one or two, maybe one second, but not all of them. I mean, it's 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 fundamentally comes down to the difference in, in one or a couple of decision makers as to whether they get it, want to do it, or have no interest in it at all. And we're now at a place where everyone has to, or you just need to settle for different outcomes. And those different outcomes are going to be different product affinity, different levels of loyalty, different uh, overall revenue, and a different stock price. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And uh, again, it's a, a little bit of a sink or swim, even more so now than it was before. It is. And I think the other thing is, the level of consumer accountability and voices in the industry that if you if you don't, your standing is essentially going to go pop. Right. So there's way more at stake because people are impassioned and it's it's very in and uncompromising at this point. Right. And unified. I mean a lot of the research that we shared with some of our clients is how the multicultural segments are unifying now. So you start to see uh you know the Hispanic communities uh standing in solidarity with the black community and, and the uh, LGBTQ community is standing in solidarity with both of them. And then there's the intersection of people who are, you know, black and Asian or, you know, black and Mexican, or they are LGBTQ and Latino. So that cross section is starting to emerge as more discovery around that. So what, you, what you're going to have is they're all going to be rooted together. You don't get to serve one ethnic segment well in disserv- in, at a disservice to the other. You'll be called on that because it'd be like, look, you don't get to pick and choose who to be equal to or, or or be inclusive to and not the other, they're all going to be talking. So the danger is that brands have to understand that, you know, the black and brown community and I put LGBTQ in it as well, are all unified. And the the what you find is in, in the LGBTQ acronym expanding to be to include IA and the A is for ally, all these segments now have allies. So mm-hmm. You know, you have the, the gay community who now has allied people who are heterosexual but are, are you know, identified differently, but they support them. So now the black community through Black Lives Matter has 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 allies. Mm-hmm. The Latino community will find allies, Asian community allies. So if they're all allies of each other and then heavily rooted and grounded into the millennial makeup and definitely Gen Z, you start to synthesize the sum of its parts and understand the seriousness which you have to sort of get your affairs together. Yeah, a lot of good stuff in your answer there. So Albert, you've been great so far, but I do actually have one more question for you before I let you go on with the rest of your day. Sure. So is there any kind of technology or data that you're excited to see advance or just become more widely used in the future to help better target your clients' best customers and, and prospects? Wow. Um, you know, if, if I had to, it's probably three, if I had to talk about two, that it would be great to just have more, uh, signal input. You know, the first one is location, mm-hmm. who you are is very much identified by where you go, and how long you're there, what you do there, what your patterns are. Um, sorry if that sounds, you know, very national security ish, <laughs> uh, but let's be clear. That's, that's, that's how you catch operatives, uh, in the field and so you know that technology uh the other one i'd probably say is artificial intelligence in a sense of unpacking it i mean look there are almost 70 derivatives of ai 
So when people say it, it is absolutely meaningless. When you start to look at very specific facets of it and how they can close information gaps or draw correlations between one pattern and the next, or look at patterns in the physical world versus digital world, tremendous amount of power in that. And I think one that's a little bit further off is the future of voice uh, in a sense that, look, we are entering a contactless world. Nobody wants to touch anything. Like right. for, for it, it, this could, and that could remain for another 18 months. So the idea that, uh, you know, voice apps need to emerge, more uses of voice commands to do everything from opening a door to uh, um, navigating up and down in, in an elevator um, to the fact that uh, the, the agility in switching from tapping a phone to do commands to, to, to seamless voice communication to communicate the same thing. The ability to toggle back and forth mm-hmm. because so much of our communication as human beings is not necessarily touching. Yeah, that's a great answer. So uh, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it. If someone wants to know more about Walton Isaacson or you or your work on the transient identity, where can they go? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the, speaking to the podcast, you know, it's on Spotify and, and Anchor, but obviously Spotify is the universal platform. Just plug it in and, you know, enjoy some of the conjecture and, you know, enjoy talking, have, having companies like yourself on as a guest. You know, if you want to uh, understand more about Walton Isaacson, obviously they can go to the website or some of the social channels or they can reach out to, uh, our head of uh, uh, business development, Juan, would be more than happy, or Sophia, to kind of, you know, schedule some time in to see about some of the things that we're thinking about and working on. Perfect. We'll make sure to link everything in the show notes so that our listeners can obviously easily access those resources. Appreciate it again. All right. Thank you so much. Well, that's all the time we have for today's episode of The Why Behind the Buy. I want to thank my guests, Ron and Albert, for joining me to share their expertise. And thanks to you listening at home or on the go. As always, if you haven't already, we would love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Rate us five stars, share with a friend, and leave us a positive comment. If you enjoyed what you heard today and want to learn more about multicultural audiences, visit our website at www.claritas.com. And with that, we'll see you next time for a brand new episode. Bye now.